Welcome back to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Lucia and I are talking to Shirley Steinberg about critical pedagogy. And in part two, we continue to read the word in the world with Shirley. She talks about how to live out righteous indignation in our educational systems and how to create resistance and change. We also talked to her about Freire and Hope in the midst of this pandemic. I saw in the, the Chronicle of Higher Ed blog yesterday, someone posted a, an article that was, the title was something like, wash your hair before Zooming with your students. And then it was all about how if, if faculty, if like faculty are unprepared for their Zoom conversations and check-ins with students, and if, and they should treat their Zoom classes as if they were giving a corporate presentation to a potential um, client, because students are clients of the university. So would you send me that? Yes, I, I will. I'll, I'll send it in our little Zoom chat. That's fabulous. Um, but it's, it's, such, it's such an exhibit. It is, and that's, and that's the second part of, of your question is, um, I've always known, because like I was put on too long, I'm a research professor, and they put me online to teach classes of 20 people to teach writing. I teach dissertation writing, like seriously, like that's how you silence political teachers. Mm -hmm. And so I only teach two courses a year, two courses a year. And that's where I'm put now. And I, I was thinking and looking and looking at the online course offerings before this started and realized that we are moving there. And I sit and I look like I, I live in an apartment house and I'm overlooking the university. And I realized that these buildings are so large and so much money to maintain. And yet we're all managing to teach online. And, you know, we've, and plus, Education is reduced. We don't have those courses anymore in a doctoral program. We barely have it. We have something called curriculum. And it depends on who's going to teach it. So if you're a pinarian, you're going to shout autobiography for six months. And if you're an old time, uh, you know, curricularist, you're going to still do, you know, Tyler and do that stuff. So, you know, we don't know. And you can do that online. You can teach Tyler online. You can teach Piner online. You know, it doesn't really matter. So, and you could teach decolonizing online. So to that question, I think this is where we were going anyhow. I really do. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be hard for universities that charge high tuition to justify that much money to sit with a, a computer on your lap and talk to your teacher. And so that's going to be, but it's all good. This is all going to be economic. We know that we're in the, I mean, when I, I remember going to Penn State in 1992 and I brought a Coke to my, cl to my uh, class and I was teaching uh, the Penn State football team. They always would put the football team in my literacy class. And so I was teaching the, the, the athletes and I had a can of Coke and they said, you know, uh, Ms. Steinberg, you, you're drinking Coke. It's like, Yeah. And they said, you can't have Coke on campus. This is 1992. And I said, or 94, what? What do you mean you can't have Coke on campus? This is a Pepsi campus. Penn State is a Pepsi campus. And like, you know, if you want to learn about life, teach at a Big Ten university um, or at a SEC university. And um, 
I had to be explained that Coke was forbidden on campus and you had to drink Pepsi because we had a $6 million deal with Pepsi. And, and so that was my first 1994 moment. Of course, Neil Postman had already predicted this. Marshall McLuhan, all these people had already said this, but I hadn't paid that attention. But we had become a corporate university. And of course, Nike and looking at the swooshes on all the teams and, and Adidas and stuff like that, we realized that early in the 80s and 90s, we had been corporatized. So to say now, and now, like I remember when I first got my job here about eight years ago, my I had a big meeting with my committee to do this uh, institute I'd opened and they said okay we're going to talk about branding and it's like mm. why well, have an advertising what do you mean you mean branding like branding yeah and so I remember a two-hour conversation on the appropriate font that we could use to brand my my center and mm. I realized this is where okay so there's like those there's another aha moment okay the stories are different now so we have been corporatized for 30 years 40 years as educators. And this is, this, I, I honestly, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say there is no pandemic. This was all created, created so all the universities could still, could close down, rent out their big buildings. Like where I live, they could have condos now. The, the arenas can be paved, all this, and we can just build condos for more people to buy. And we could corporatize everything literally, because I think this is our next step. I don't think we're going to go back to full teaching. Maybe we'll have on the ground classes if we are out of this this year. I don't particularly think so. As a teacher who teaches sometimes when I am on the ground, 400 students in a lecture class, I'm not very comfortable about that. I'd already dealt with white supremacists in my class two years ago, shouting us down. So I'm kind of, as a, for safety, I think maybe it's better. Maybe students can afford education. Are they going to be able to pay us the ridiculous salaries they pay us? I don't know. But I do think that this pandemic is now a very big opportunity moment for corporate universities to flip to full corporatism. Well, I am a scholar of the apocalypse, and I want to <laughs> turn this a little bit um, to see if you can give us some, some hope <laughs> and some more positive examples. Do you see anything being done out there um, that is in terms of democratic education and youth empowerment? Because I know you send teachers out there to do it. They're equipped. And uh, are they able to do it in, in the way that the the system has been corporatized. Um, still, what do you? What gives you hope out there? What do, what models are you seeing? You're pulling out your inner Apollo by doing that. And oh. he, he he would say. I remember him saying to me, um, "Surely, you you are too you are too you worry too much. You are too negative. We must always have hope." And I said, "Oh no, oh, no I can't have hope." <laughs> and he said, "You know, but." You're right. And that's what I mean, that's what he ended his life with was the notion of pedagogy of hope. Um, it's as angry as I am. I feel like you have to have kind of that righteous anger, righteous indignation in order to make a change. And, you know, I, I always I'm a Jew who uses Jesus to teach um, because Jesus is is probably the most the personality is probably the most uh, good example of righteous indignation. Like, and I do believe that scholars of Christ understand that this, this 
entity who existed probably um, raised hell a lot more than we thought, that he was a radical. I mean, he was literally and figuratively a radical. He was talking about usurping the entire status quo. He was absolutely a, the ultimate socialist. He created socialism in a sense. Um, and, and I think it's so funny that the group of people that espouse a knowledge and love of this entity have no concept of any of his teachings, none. And that always astounds me. So, but do I see Christian churches rallying around being Christian right now? No. Um, do I see Christian voices saying, let's turn to the teachings of who we um, pay tithe to? Let's look at suffer the little children. Let's look at the notion of um, giving, of how people are treated. No. So I can't turn to, to deity or to God. That's not going to work. Um, can we turn to literature? No, because most of our population now doesn't read at an appropriate level to read anything. So what is it educators can do? Well, I've always told my students that number one is your duty is to keep your job. Because if you get fired as a professor or as a teacher, you cannot do what you are here to learn to do. And so that's important. So we have to first work with how to keep your job, how to be on the down low, how to create um, resistance without being the, the shitster in, in the faculty meeting. We're all done that. We did that in the 90s and no one liked us. Um, we can't, and as women, we're, we're messed up. We can't do it. We have to be in stealth. We have to be the shiny, happy face that um, looks agreeable, that goes with everything, that shuts their door and does exactly what they want. Like creating assignments uh, with our university students that are exactly word for word what the curriculum tells you to do, but perverting it in how the this will come. So I teach a, if I teach a writing class, I'm going to have them write about a distinctly important point of what they're doing in order to create themes and shed light on how institutions have failed them. But I'm not going to say I want you to write about how the institution has failed us. It's going to be very, so this, we have to have this double layered curriculum at all times. We cannot tell what we're doing. We are stealth. I use the word critical less and less. Um, in fact, this guy called Mark Green was going to run against Bloomberg to be mayor of New York. And he came to speak to our teaching union uh, in New York City years ago. And he said to us, um, when you're writing grants, when you try to get money, I'm going to tell you what never to say. In your grants, never mention social justice, never mention democracy. And he he said, grants with those words are thrown out immediately. And I'll never forget that. So I try not to use the typical liberal, radical, critical pedagogy language when I'm teaching. I try to not, and I try to say, I don't want this to sound radical. I don't want this to sound revolutionary. When I talk about equity, I say, of course, I'm not talking about Marxism. I actually do like to keep my Jesus metaphor. I do uh, denying three times of who I am. And I tell 
them how to get through the system without using words that make people scared. So that's the number one is watch your language. Do not scream from the hills, democracy and activism. You're not gonna get anywhere. In a non-democratic country that thinks it's democratic, don't say you want to do something for democracy. It scares them. And social justice, that's, that's a killer. That's a buzz killer. You can't do it. So we have to redo our words so that we sound like we're normal people, but learn so that the students start to come to us. So you don't tell them what they're looking for. So what and why I do, I do work a lot of work in thematic, well, in this bricolage notion, but I'm drawing themes. So with my students, when they are doing a body of research or study, I have them write their notes up and then I teach them a particular way to thematically analyze. And then I have them sit there and look at the themes and say, okay, now what do you get out of this, these five points that you got? What do you see in this? And so with the interviews or with the reading, always themes, putting things in categorizing and themes speaks to, tells you what your data is. You don't have to tell it. It just jumps out at you. And like, and so when you have your list, it speaks to you. So you start to say, oh, well, wow, these seven women, this is, oh, I didn't realize this, but they all mentioned race or they mentioned, they mentioned treatment or they mentioned aspiration and they, and people start to see where the categories speak to them. So if you let, if you work your, with your students so that the data it talks to you, then you don't have to give them the language. And so to me, it's the students have to find the language to label what they're seeing. And I can't tell them. So uh, is that indoctrination? No, I'm, I'm, I'm working with them to be empowered to name it themselves. I can't help it if the 10 documents they've analyzed are showing that way, hey, this is undemocratic, it's top-down, it's anti-this, and it's absolutely against a socially just approach to education. I let them come up with it. Because if I teach them, I am indoctrinating, and it bothers them, and they and even if they buy it, they're scared. Now, this is antithetical to how we taught in the 90s when we're just kind of pounding them over the head with a mallet, with Paulo Freire's, you got to do this and you have to do this and it's this and this and this and it's not. You know, in fact, we almost became oppressors teaching pedagogy of the oppressed. And so it has to be reversed. We have to be lighter. We have to be more um, uh, able to walk down the path next to someone, but not in front of them and lead them in a kind of collegial equal way so that they stop and look at something and say, oh, wow, this is really troubling. It's kind of what happened with the, the uh, pandemic last week when all these commentators kind of, it was like this aha moment, like, wow, did you realize that black and brown people are treated differently in a pandemic and you know that was like the headline for like 10 days it was why are people of different races being in like and you know people who are in those races or people who are sociologically minded are just like and you just figured this out after 400 years you dawned on you yeah so i don't know if that answers your question but it's that that idea of we have to be patient 
We have yeah. to also understand our students are not as smart as our students were. Tina, when you and I started teaching, they're not. They are not coming to university prepared. They're not even getting to high school prepared. Mm -hmm. My teacher education students who are taking courses for me, my grad students, go into a grade nine science class and they want to talk about safety when they do experiments. And their kids, I'm not kidding you, cannot even read the instructions and understand how to use safety materials, let alone conduct a chemical experiment. We're talking about a disenfranchised population in the United States that is less than 60% literate when they get to high school. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we have to really lead them. We have to be patient. We have to understand. Mm -hmm. yeah. and we, can do, we can bring back stuff that we do think is important, that is not curricular. But we, my advice, my one advice would be use the state standards or the provincial standards like they are gospel. They are because that's who's paying your salary and keeping the schools open but doesn't mean that you can't take them and cut them into little tiny pieces and bricolage them and move them and thematically change them. Yeah. Standards are nothing. They're, they're done by people like the Amway woman. They don't know what they're doing. So we can just take them and, and when people come in and examine our classrooms, I adhere to standards. We're doing standard one, standard eight, standard seven. And then everything we do underneath is critical. It's theoretical. And it's empowering. Yeah. So for the love, dominant paradigm. <laughs> I, I love this um, because it gives a whole new meaning to the concept of hidden curriculum. Yes. <laughs> um, can I tell you a two-minute quick story? Yeah. Kinchlow's first job was, I think, grade seven or eight in Tennessee. He was a social studies teacher. And they um, and he had tried for job after job after job. He couldn't get hired as a teacher because he would. He was very long-winded, much more than me. And he was a storyteller. And so he would go in and he would do the whole emancipatory Paulo Freire thing. He never got a job. So he went to this last thing, and then he was realized he'd have to work in a factory. He was never going to get a job. And so he goes in for the interview, and somebody had whispered something in his ear. So he went in to the to the interview, and the guy said. Okay, you're Joe Kinchlow. Why do you want to teach? And he said, for the children. That's all he said. And the guy said, do you coach? And Joe said, you name it, I can coach it. You're hired. And that's how he got his first job. Anyhow, so he goes into, he goes into teaching in this, class, in this school in social studies. And the, they would have an examiner in those days would come every month walking around. The, and this was the social studies superintendent. She would walk around and she would come in and Joe would have kids on the floor and they'd be cutting and creating. And he would go into his two hour explanation as Joe always would about all the emancipatory. And so she wanted him fired. He was a troublemaker. She wanted him gone. And so he was called into the superintendent's office three or four times and he and he he just absolutely did not know how to put this together. So he had a colleague who was a kind of a straight laced, very compassionate colleague who helped him. And so this is what he did. First thing he did was he went to the state standards, state of Tennessee standards, and he made great big huge blow ups of them. And he had the kids make mobiles and art projects and the standards were hung all over the classroom. He number two, and this is an important thing for empowering teachers, you let your students know what you're doing. 
very important that they are not blindsided. They need to know. And he explained that the way he was teaching was not appropriate for the division. So they had to um, obey the standards and do the right thing, but we were going to do it our way. And so they started this. He also photocopied and made huge notes and everything and had the books and they were all placed in the kids, in the kids uh, little cubbies of the desks. He also um, explained and he would name, okay, Susie, you do this, Jackie, you do this, if this happens. Okay, so they actually practiced it and they had a pair of red scissors and red scissors were given to um, Joe. So he, they would do the class on the floor, same stuff. And his best friend was way on the other end where the parking lot was. And he would see when the examiners would come. When the examiners would come, he would send a kid running to Joe's classroom with the red scissors. The kid would give Joe the red scissors. Joe would hold up the red scissors. And in five minutes, the kid's desks were back in place. They were sitting there. He was up at the board with a chalkboard asking a question <laughs> about something. And the teacher would walk in. And the first time, he didn't think it would work. The first time he walked in, he was doing this pompous lecture, writing on the board. And she just sat down astounded. And two or three times that month she came back and he was awarded the top social studies teacher <laughs> award so he totally played the game and i think of those red scissors all the time because that's hidden curriculum that's mm -hmm. how we do we teach on two levels we teach to what they want and then we teach to what the kids need i um that's that's an amazing place to wrap up but you know, the last couple of interviews we've done, we've ended by just asking each other what what we're reading lately, to sort of sh to share that. So Shirley, what are you, what are you reading right now? And it could be it could be pedagogical theory, or it could be something something else. And since what we read is how we're making our world and our imagination. Oh, I used to do that to people to intimidate them into reading. Um, <laughs> that's not that's not my that's not my tactic here. <laughs> unfortunately, I am reading uh, how to do the bass clef and how to how to do bass because my partner is teaching me how to play bass guitar cool. because we're incarcerated, and so we rented a bass guitar. So I'm learning to do that, and then I'm also um, reading dissertations and I'm reading one now um, a student who has applied indigenous methodologies all the way through doing mathematics and so I'm having to read a lot of sage burning stuff and tobacco giving and I'm I'm having some real um, uh, what would I call it uh, theoretical issues about the notion of how we can apply non-Western, we talk so much about we want non-Western, we want non-Western, we want non-Western, but how can we authentically apply non-Western to the Western notion of doing a dissertation and a thesis? So I'm, I'm kind of rereading her stuff and then reading all her, her um, citations in, in, and not particularly successfully coming up with an aha, because I'm wondering if just because we want to do certain ways of knowing um, doesn't mean it's going to meld particularly beautifully. And then I go back to, to women's ways of knowing and how in the 80s we were trying so hard to apply women's ways of knowing and we have successfully 
put it that into integration. So I'm, I'm kind of having this turmoil wondering how indigenousness can fit seamlessly and should it, it be seamless? And so I'm doing a lot of reading um, on these people that write who are indigenous writers like Linda Talloway Smith, an author for Arrows, uh, people like that, and trying to figure out can things live seamlessly or is there something wrong with not being seamless? So that's kind of what I'm reading. I would love to read a novel. I would love to read a magazine. I just, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like maybe I've read them all. I don't know. I try not to read too much because it tends to be news and I'm trying to be, I am also on a, <clears throat> I'm on a diet of, of what I consume and being in Canada, the Canadian news is, I mean, it's still the same numbers, but it's done so differently. So I'm kind of hiding behind Canadian news right now. And occasionally I'll turn on Chris Cuomo and that's about it because I like him when he talks to his brother. And that's about all I watch is the governor of New York. That's the only news I want to watch. So I'm sort of scared. Of, I'd like to say I'm reading like these great new novels, but I just don't have the mental capacity to read novels anymore right now. This has been wonderful. Should we share what we're reading, Tina? I like this little tradition of, of ending the podcast with book recommendations for our listeners. Okay, I want to hear your book recommendation. Well, I am uh, working on an, an abstract for a festrif for a friend who was one of the leading uh, scholars, African-American scholars in Hebrew Bible, uh, retired. Wait, are you, can you tell us who it is? Or? Yes, Randall Bailey. Taught at the Theological Center. Fantastic work on gender and race. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I've known him uh, a long time since seminary. We were uh, at Emory University together. And um, so I'm, I'm doing something on the image of God in Genesis 126. Uh, he mentioned to one of my students about 10 years ago that image also has um, a meaning of shadow and has some connections with race. And so I'm tracking that down. I don't know where I'm going. I'm reading everything I can to try to, to get at that. Um, and I do it having, doing apocalyptic, and I'm also working on a Jesus book, and I really appreciate you and Joe's book. Um, oh, Christo <laughs> Yes, because um, I do media, I do Bible and film uh, too. So, um, there's, there's that that I'm working on uh, with films like Us and Mother, <laughs> all these strange Ooh. films. I'm Last Day in the Desert. I love that. I think Jordan Peele is so important uh, in our society yeah. right now. Yeah. So I do horror theory, um, uh, which may connect to the pedagogical stuff <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm involved in. Um, we also, I had mentioned about our democratic departmental process, you know, our, us trying to, to live that. <clears throat> um, and so I'm reading a lot right now about deliberative process and, you know, how we can come together uh, remotely as a department, um, have our graduation dinner online and honor our seniors and um, uh, honor student voices. Um, a student will be chairing the next online department meeting. Uh, and, and exactly, you know, how to, how to do that now that we're not face to face, so. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. 
Lucia was part of that. <laughs> but what you say is you're reading to create a book. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's my whole life. I just, I never can read anymore for fun. I yeah. just, yeah. I, have to, I have to edit a book or write a book about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm yeah. very interested in that. I'd like to send you something I think you'd like to read an article. Oh, an mm -hmm. article. Um, on, I have you seen Hunter? No. Okay, that's Jordan Peele's new production. It's on, um, oh. it's on okay. Amazon Prime, I think. It's oh. it's incredibly okay. weird. I find very problematic, but I think you should watch <laughs> yeah. it. It's about Nazi hunters in the seventies, but it's Jordan oh, Peele. Yeah. I did and see. I've seen an episode with Al Pacino. Yeah, it's very yeah, weird. Yes. And I'm trying, because I was going to, I actually wanted to do a book on his work. And I am having trouble. I, it's, I'd love to see what you think after you watch that. Okay, great. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Lucia? I'm also reading for a book. Um, but what I will say, and this is my defense of, defense slash uh, incitement to everybody to read to read novels and creative nonfiction while they're writing books is that I as I find as I'm trying to figure out the 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 form of my text that reading novels in particular but also literary nonfiction with that that are experimenting with the form of the writing um, is super helpful for helping me imagine my my own um, what how I'm going to structure my book um so the book I just started is you which you it I think it won the Booker Prize or was a finalist for it um is called Ducks comma Newburyport mm -hmm. and it's by an <laughs> author named Lucy Elman um and the it's this it's it's over 1,000 pages long and it's one sentence so it's oh, just this sort of run-on sentence of oh, fragments. So cool. Yeah. And so it's 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 and it's it's a it's it's a feminist commentary on like what it is like to be have a life that's structured by reproductive labor. Um so it's I'm only I mean I'm only just a little bit into it, but you, you have this kind of grand clash of like the minutia of just like being in a house and managing kids and um, oh my gosh, is climate, is the climate apocalypse coming? Oh, here's this thing that happened on TV today. Oh, this is a movie plot. And it's sort of like, it's all, it's like this picture of, um, it's a stream of consciousness picture of, of contemporary life, gendered life. Um, so I'm reading that, and Elman E L L M A N, and it's called Ducks Newburyport. All right, I love that. Yeah, and I'm reading a lot of I don't know if this, this is kind of old news for a lot of a lot of folks on the left, but Mark Fisher's work. Do you know Mark Fisher? Um, he has an his book Capitalist Realism has some really good content about um, corporatization of schools and mm. the rise of assessment and the, the pernicious idea that there is no alternative to capitalism. And that's what he calls capitalist realism, is this idea that there is no alternative. I have the PDF of the book and I can send it if you need it. Do, please, I yeah. would love to read that. I am reading, I did read a book though this month 
I read um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, Between the World and Me. Oh, yeah. Everyone has to read this book. (laughs) He's a beautiful writer. And I was kind of reading a lot of James Baldwin, but just pieces. I find it really hard to sustain a whole book with this thing going on. Yeah. Like, I would love to be able to just go into a book, but I think it's really hard. Uh Yeah. I think for me, the more fragmentary books are like the ones that have short chapters, like you have to have like a low, a low, um, low bar for entry. Well, I wonder if that's, and I wonder, see, these are the things that I think, you know, if I had another 40 years to chair dissertations, I might suggest not make them do, but the idea of how attention span and where, how our, how our cognition is going to be reformed by this. And I think it is. I think cognition is really going to change in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm just, can I do, I, I just realized that I started, I am uh, the executive editor of a new publishing company. Mm. And I, can I plug it? Because people, people are academics that want a new outlet. Um, it's a cooperative kind of thing that my old editor who was with Springer and uh, then with Sense uh, has started and it's called Dio, D-I-O, Do It Ourselves Press. And it's a, it's a, a press that is publishing, first of all, it's um, much better royalties for the writers, it's equitable, and it's also a very fast production, like within three months the books come out, wow. and they can go out in E, and they are, um, of course, totally funded by the company, there's no money put in, um, and it has a good editorial board, but it, if people are interested in that, they can contact me because we're looking for it. It's a critical press. It is totally critically pre- critical pedagogically framed. And okay. it's, it's quite cool. I'm very excited about it. Um, and there's well-known authors and new authors. And so we're very excited about that. If people are interested. We'll put a link on the website. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking to you has been just amazing. Maybe this is what people should do is just have little coffee clutches with colleagues they've never met it's kind of a neat yeah it's kind of fun it's wonderful yeah in the Uh, midst of the pandemic thank you Shirley for being with us on nothing never happens ah women be safe yes you too yes you too uh in in real life I'd love to meet you (laughs) one day yes one day we will meet one day I know You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. The producer is China Wilson. The audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. The interstitial music is by Lance Eric Hagen. Our outro music is by Stray Roads, consisting of Paul Myrie, and Mike Shelton, and the song is Another Story 2, available on bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening.